The first reading is John 12, 12 through 23. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The second reading is Luke 19, 37 through 44. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is God's word. I encourage you to uh, keep your Bibles turned to John chapter 12 this morning. How do we capture the significance of Palm Sunday? I actually think it's some words in a a Christmas carol that concisely capture the meaning. When it says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It wasn't night and it wasn't Bethlehem. But the sentiment was the reality of what was happening that moment. This was the coronation day of the King of Kings, the coming of a new administration, a new rule, something Israel had longed for for centuries, something the world has longed for ever since humanity usurped the throne of God. Ever since we bought the lie 
that we can be like God. Our rule has simply contributed to the ruin of our world. When we supplanted God's rule, our world broke, it fell apart, and we've never been able to put it back together again. Our very hearts, the depths of our being, know that this world should be a world of peace, not of war. Of love, not of hatred. Of grace, not of judgmentalism. It should be a place where truth, not lies, reign. Where generosity flows from all of us rather than we hoarding it and using others to build our bank accounts. We all know this world is not what it should be because we have taken the rule of it. But this day offers a new administration. We always long for new administrations that somehow will make it right. Every presidential election, uh, the opposition always promises change. And very often we buy into that, and so we change administrations because we, we know this, the old administration has not fixed things. We, we need maybe the change that the new regime will bring in. And if we re-elect the old one, it's simply because we don't really believe the promise that the new ones will actually bring a good and positive change. Maybe there's a few of us who still live in the fantasy world that somehow our politicians will make this world right. A new administration will change all things. I think millennia of history show that is not the case. But the promise that they awaited was that the designer of the universe would come and bring a new administration. It's described in Zechariah chapter 9. It's what Israel awaited for. It's what resonates in our hearts. Listen to the promise the prophet Zechariah gave. He will proclaim peace to the nations his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. What a tremendous promise of peace and prosperity. But it wasn't simply a promise that could not be fulfilled. It was a prophecy of what would be and will be. Previous to what I just read, there are some verses to describe the one who will bring this to pass. In the ninth verse of the same chapter, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That promise of a new rule, of the designer coming, taking once again 
this world into his hands was to be fulfilled on Palm Sunday. Not only did Zechariah accurately predict what would take place, I believe Daniel in chapter 9 precisely predicted the day that it would take place. For he gives a prophecy citing that it would be 483 Jewish calendar years to when the Messiah would appear. He gives the starting date that we know now was 444 B.C. And scholars like Harold Honer, New Testament scholar who, who centered his study in the chronology of the life of Christ and looked closely at this prophecy, pinpointed that the day that that would take place, at least the month, was Nisan, and possibly the day, Nisan 10th, A.D. 33, the exact day of Palm Sunday. No wonder why Jesus said to the Pharisees, if I silence the people, the stones will cry out, blessed be the name of the Lord. So what happened? Why aren't we living in this world when that day took place. That's what we want to look at this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we have, so many of us have celebrated multitudes of Palm Sundays. And because of that, we can come this morning and miss how momentous and how glorious this day is. Father, I pray that your Spirit might bring it to life in our hearts, but that your Spirit also might open our eyes to see our part and why Jesus is not exalted today as Lord. Work in us today to see the glorious King, to unite our hearts and our very lives to his reign in Jesus' name, we pray. Why? If he came as king and the people proclaimed him as his king, why do we say the world is unchanged? And it's because despite the outward appearance of this celebration and this enthronement, the reality was in the very hearts of the people praying Hosanna, in the hearts of the crowd, even the hearts of the disciples, was what Jesus captured in Luke 19. Remember it said, just read, As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you you had only known on this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus looked at the city and said, You aren't getting it. You do not recognize the time. No matter what you're saying, you haven't gotten it and you will be left exactly where you have always been because you have not 
accepted the time of God's coming to you to bring peace. See, there were four groups that John mentions. And if you want to follow this sermon and you're willing to write in your Bibles, an easy way would be to underline each of these four. Verse 12 says, The next day, the great crowd. Verse 16, at verse, his disciples. You want to underline that. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another. Could underline the Pharisees. Verse 20, now where there's, there were some Greeks among you, you can underline the word Greeks. And what we are going to see is that Jesus was not enthroned for very different reasons among different types of people. And I think these four groups represent us today. That if we allow the Spirit of God to search our hearts this morning, I think every one of us will find ourselves in one of these groups. Are you willing to let the Spirit speak to you? So let's look at them. First, the great crowd. We look at the great crowd and they seem to be doing all the right things, aren't they? They have rushed out to meet Jesus. They are singing his praises. They take the palms. They lay them before him. They take off their cloaks. They lay them before a king. They shout the messianic psalms of blessed be the name of the Lord. As they wave their palms, they they shout Hosanna, which means God save us, save us now. I mean, they're doing all the right things. Yet, from what we just read, Jesus' description of them is they didn't recognize it. You know, they're, they're like us sometimes that we go through all the right Christian motions. Uh, we come to church. We're going to come to church on Easter next week. This week we come and we, we say Hosanna and we smile as the kids wave the palms. And next week we're going to come and we're going to celebrate this day of Jesus' resurrection on Good, on Good Friday. We're going to have uh, a vigil time where you can come and meditate on the cross of Christ. Monday, Thursday, we're going we're gonna to look at and, and commemorate the night that Jesus faced his death to the fullness. And, and yet we can go through all those things and still really not get it. I've told this story before, but I think it captures this. Is While I was in seminary uh, during Advent season, I, I went to a mall once and I passed out little papers that told about how you can know God personally through Jesus Christ. And one of the young men took that and he, and he was reading it. So I, I saw that as an invitation to engage in a conversation. So I asked him, I said, you know, what's, what's really the meaning of Christmas? And he says, we celebrate the birthday of Jesus. And I go, yeah. And why, out of all the people who have ever lived in the face of this earth, why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? And he said, because he's Savior of the world. I go, that's right. I thought I'd ask one more question. So what does it mean that Jesus is Savior of the world? And he said, 
beats me. You know, I was no different. I, I grew up in church. I celebrated Good Friday and, and Easter and Christmas. I, I was in Sunday school classes. I don't know if I could have gotten as far as that guy to say, if they asked, why did Jesus die? To say, well, he was Savior. Uh, if I did, I had no clue what that meant. And that seems to be what was going on among these people. They said all the right words. What a celebration. But in the end, I guess if you pressed them, pushed them to the wall, they'd say, what does it all mean? And they'd say, it beats me. But, but maybe it was even worse than that. Because a few days later, Jesus is tried and he's brought before the masses. And it's probable that many of those people who shouted Hosanna that day a few days later, cry out, I crucify him. At best, they didn't do anything to silence those voices. So why this group that could feign allegiance to Jesus really not desire it? And my guess is that the answer is they wanted the kingdom without the king. We see it in, it says, they, they heard about the resurrection of Lazarus and so they rushed out. They rushed out to him because of the miracles, because of the things he could do. We all want what God offers, the peace and the prosperity and the beauty and the joy and the celebration and the love and the goodness. But we want it still able to rule our own lives. We want the kingdom without the king. I'm no different. Early in my college years, my brother had this dramatic transformation. I mean, he was an angry, bitter, self-centered young man. And he came back from Haight-Ashbury as this joyful, peaceful, calm, self-giving man. It wasn't anything that the hippies offered him out there. He found Jesus out there. And he brought me to some Bible studies, and I went and I said, wow, this is, this, this is real. This God stuff is real. And so after a couple of weeks of it, I sat down before God, and I prayed, and I said, God, I know this is real. But I'm in college. This is too much fun. You know, tap me on the shoulder in a couple of years because I'm not interested right now. A bolt of lightning came out of heaven and that's why my hair is all singed and gray. <laughs> no, uh, I don't understand why that did not happen. Grace? Huh? It's the same way. I want the kingdom without the king. I want the Christian life sometimes without Christ's ruling mind. You know, that's really the essence of sin is us usurping the throne of God. I remember one time, uh, it was actually Richard McDonald and I were sitting down with, with somebody and I was trying to open up the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And, you know, I'd say, you know, we, we've all sinned and that separates us from God and, you know, Jesus died for us and, the person kept wanting to go, okay, yeah, yeah, let me, let me pray that prayer. 
And so I felt something was wrong. I didn't really believe that person understood her, her real sinfulness before God. Because if you don't understand your sinfulness, you don't understand what it means to have a Savior. And so I wasn't going to just have her pray this prayer perfunctorily. I really felt she needed to understand her sin. And so I said some more things and she said, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and let me pray the prayer. I said some more things about sin. And let's pray the prayer. And then finally, I remembered a book that I read, Four Spiritual Laws. And it has a picture of, of a life and all the activities of life. And it has a chair, a throne on the center. And it essentially asks the question, is Christ on the throne of your life or are you self, yourself on the throne of life? And she looked at that and she said, I'm in trouble. She got it. The essence of sin was when we put ourselves on the thrones of our lives and we kick Jesus off. When we understand that, that's when we get it. That's when we begin to understand, I'm in trouble. I need a Savior. The crowd didn't get it. Second group we look at is jump a few verses to look at the Pharisees in verse 19. Now the Pharisees, they should have gotten it. I mean, these are religious leaders. They're the teachers who study. They scrutinize the scriptures. They know it backwards and forwards. They know so much more Bible than we would ever know. They had it memorized. They had it detailed. They had it categorized. They knew where Messiah was going to be born. That's why Herod calls him in. Where's Messiah going to be born? They knew. Sure, Bethlehem of Judea. They knew the prophecies of Jesus. If anyone should have gotten it, they they should have gotten it. They were the ones waiting. They were the ones the people looked to and said, Is that the Messiah? Is that him? When's he coming? They were the ones to point the direction to the Messiah. And look at their response in this passage in verse 19. The Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world follows him. In the context, the Pharisees have been trying to deal with Jesus. They've been trying to suppress him. They've even entered into a plot to take Jesus' life. And they see that so far all their work has gotten them nowhere because they look at the masses that are going out to Jesus. They are so disappointed they're going to have to ramp up their suppression of Jesus. Another passage we read in Luke. They come to Jesus. They are so exasperated. They can do nothing to stop this wave. So they finally ask Jesus, Jesus, you got to stop this crowd. The reason was they felt it was blasphemy. But Jesus knew it wasn't blasphemy. He would not stop the crowd. So why is it? Why is it that the religious leaders who should have known were the ones trying to put a stop to it. And they did put a stop, so they thought, to Jesus a few days later. Why, why is it? What was the dynamics of their hearts that wouldn't allow them to see Jesus as king? And to answer that question, I actually looked at 
another Pharisee, a renowned Pharisee who studied under perhaps one of the greatest Pharisaical teachers of all time. And he was a persecutor of Christ. He went out uh, covering the land, looking for disciples of Jesus in order to arrest them, have them imprisoned, and yes, even have them executed. He joyfully stood by at the martyrdom of Stephen. His name was Paul. So here we have a man who, who had the heart of the Pharisees, but somehow changed. What was the difference? What was the heart of that Pharisee that was so enraged against Jesus they had to silence him? And I think Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 3 when he describes his former attitude. And he essentially says this, I trusted my own personal righteousness. If you trust your own personal righteousness, you can't come close to matching me. And then he lays it out. He says, If someone thinks he has reason to put confidence in his own personal righteousness, I am more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, where do you stand, righteousness based on the law? Top 90%? He says, perfect. We cannot measure up to Paul. That was the heart of Paul. He said, I was so passionate for God, I did everything right. I followed God perfectly, and I stood before God and said, look at me. A few verses later, he says, But whatever was gained to me, I now consider loss for Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider my own former righteousness to be garbage, that I may find Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And you see the difference? We're one of two kinds of people. We stand before God and say, God, accept me because... We're the best. We say, because I was born into a Christian family. I was baptized when I was an infant. I was catechized. I went to the uh, all Sunday school classes. I go to worship. Uh, <clears throat> I've never left the church. I read my Bible every day. I pray every day. I even tell other people that Jesus is the only way. We're trusting in our own righteousness. And when you trust in your own righteousness... When Jesus comes as king and offers his righteousness, we are repulsed by it because we're unwilling to admit we are sinners in need of a savior. See, the first group wanted a king without a kingdom. The problem with the Pharisees is they could not acknowledge what sinners could. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They could not say that. And so they did not want Jesus. A third group here is the Greeks. 
Now, I, I love the Greeks. I love their attitude. Look at it in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among them, uh, those who went up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. I love that. I love honest, sincere seekers of God who are willing to explore faiths that are other than their own, and especially one who's going to say, I want, I want to see who, who Jesus is. I really want to understand who Jesus is. And <clears throat> there may be some of you today here, and that, that is tremendous. Seek Jesus in truth. But the problem is these people also did nothing to stop the crucifixion of Jesus. And the reason is they never had made a decision about Jesus. You know, it's great to seek, and I encourage everyone to seek, but don't seek the rest of their life. There's a time you have to make a decision. As Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. Now that sounds very harsh, doesn't it? If you're not for me, you're against me. It's like, no, Jesus, I'm in the middle. I'm not against you. You know, I love the Christians. I, I love you, Jesus. I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not with you as a follower, but I'm not against you. Jesus, how can you say I'm against you? It's because when you don't make a decision for him, your life ends up being against him. Think, if, you, if, you, if you're dying of a terminal disease... And I offer you a medicine that will save your life. And you go, well, I'm not against that medicine, but I'm not for it. I'm not going to take it, but I'm not against it. You know, it's probably a really good medicine. You know, it's probably heals lots of other people, but I'm not against it. I'm just not for it. Where does that leave you? It leaves you as though you are against it. It leaves you in the same place as if you are against it. I mean, when World War II is raging, we sat on the fence for quite a while. And what if we continued to sit on the fence and say, well, England, we're not against you. I mean, we're not joining the, you know, Hitler and coming against you. We're just not going to join your side. And what happens to the world when we sit on the fence? And the same is true of, of, you, of us when we are seekers. Yes, seek. Try to make a decision. But you've got to make a decision about Christ because your indecision about Christ is a decision against him. All that Christ offers is not going to enter into your life. All that Christ offers the world cannot enter the world until we all come together under him. Seekers. You can't sit on the fence. Is Jesus who he said he is? Yes, ask the question. We would see Jesus. And this is a reminder to us as a church too. When a seeker comes into Westgate Church, our job is not to show them how wonderful Westgate Church is. They need to see Jesus. They're not supposed to come in and say, whoa, that, that worship was really high quality. They need to see Jesus in it. They need to see the praise and the glory of the one we lift up. That's what worship is about. And when they enter here, they need to feel the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. 
I mean, does Jesus walk, would Jesus walk by you without even looking you in the face, or giving you eye contact and a smile? We are the presentation of Jesus Christ to every seeker that walks into this place. They come in, they would see Jesus. The question is, do they see Jesus in us? That's who we are. That's what they need. The fourth group, and we might sit back and go, oh, finally a group that got it. This, this is what, you know, we're in church here together, right? These are the, this is the ones we want to associate with, the disciples. I mean, they lived with Jesus, they listened to him, they did so many of the things he said to do, and now they're by his side, and they're, they're, they're right next to him taking in all this wonder and praise of Jesus Christ. They are so proud to be with Jesus. And look at how John describes them in verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. The disciples didn't get it. And as the week unfolds, you see that very, very clearly. When Jesus meets with them in the upper room, he says, I'm going, I'm leaving you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And you know the way. You know the way. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't even know where you're going. He didn't get it. And then Philip said, he says, but I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so Philip, Philip, the one who's going to answer the Greek's question, who is this Jesus? Because, Lord, with you, just show us the Father. I think we'd get it. Jesus says, how can you say that? Haven't I not been with you, living before you? Show us the Father. Look at me. They didn't get it. Oh, they had the bravado, right, Peter? Oh, Lord, I'll die with you. Did he really get it? Not only did he deny them, but that ten of the others completely deserted Jesus as well. They didn't get it. And so they didn't stand in the way of those who would crucify Christ. They did not stand up for him at that time because they didn't get it until after he was glorified. I mean, we may think we've got Jesus. You know, we understand him. And I would say this, until we understand the vastness of his glory, the wonder and extent of his love, we don't really get it. That is why we say we have to spend every day, and even if we get it for a moment, we lose it the next moment. That is why we have to sit day by day, moment by moment, refreshing ourselves in the glory of Jesus Christ, which occurs at the cross and in the resurrection. You see, the problem with Palm Sunday is Jesus came as king. We're not ready to let him be king. Think about that in your own life. 
really let it ready to let Jesus be king? We will be when we understand what kind of king he is. And it's displayed in the in the verses we read in Luke. When it says he came to Jerusalem, and what did he do? They look over Jerusalem and say, you guys don't really understand. You don't get it no matter what I've done for you, no matter how many miracles. It's all empty voices. That's it for you. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and you deserve it. That is not the heart of this king. It says he approached Jerusalem and he wept over the city. His heart was broken and torn apart as he says, you did not recognize me. Matthew, a few days later, captures the same sentiment. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, you who stoned those sent to you. What would you say in the next words? You who killed the prophets, you who stoned everyone that God sends to you. Jesus' next words, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They just said that. But they didn't say it with meaning. They didn't really believe it. It wasn't their lives. But Jesus, instead of responding in anger, responds with a broken heart. A broken heart because of the love he has for those who spit in his face and nail his hands and feet to the cross and mock him at the base of the cross, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, I would gather you as chicks under the wings of a hen. In John 12, he replies, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is saying, I have to die because of your rejection of me. And he says, now my soul is troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No. It's the reason I came. Jesus was troubled. He could have said, Father, save me from this hour. But his prayer was, if there's another way, but Lord, I will do your will. No, I will not demand the Father save me. I will pay the price for those who sing with empty voices. For those crowd, for those who try to silence him 
and fight against them every step of the way. For those who sit on the fence seeking, but not really seeking. And for those of us who who walk alongside him and yet fail him time and time again. He died for every one of us. That's the heart of this king. Can you trust that king to rule your life? Can you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and mean it with all your being? Our Father, the words of Scripture stand before us today. Your Spirit speaks to each one of us. We are all in different places, but all in need of a Savior. Work these words into our hearts and lives. Hear our prayers, O Lord. 